I'm continuing this morning on our series on uh, renewing the mind and the power of that process in our life. And we've been springboarding off Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. And I want to read it to you in two translations again this morning. The New King James Version says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know, I said this last week that uh, we've become quite fluffy as a Pentecostal church and we look for the easy road all the time and we think, I have a problem, I have a bondage, I have an issue in my soul. If I just go to an altar call and get prayer, a miracle will happen, I'll be transformed and I'll walk out a different person. I don't underestimate God's power and ability to do that, but it's unbiblical. The process that God has designed for transformation is a thing called renewing the mind, changing the way we think. I believe in prayer lines. I believe in miracles. I believe that God can do that. But more often than not, he wants us to walk a process of aligning our thinking with his thinking, of changing the the mindsets that we came to him with breaking them down, pulling those strongholds of our mind down and rebuilding mindsets that are in alignment with the Word of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 in the New Living Translation says, Don't copy the behaviour and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. My my mind is the place of my intellect. It's the place of my reasoning, where I process things, where I work things through and determine things. And as a result, it's also the place of my intentions. So after I walk through a process of reasoning and working things through, I come to a place of intention, the thing that I will now do with that reasoning. Uh, In other words, my behaviour... My reactions to life, my responses to life, my feelings towards life all begins in my mind. And according to Romans 12 verse 2, the passages we just opened with, my mind is where spiritual transformation happens. The the focus of my regular or habitual thinking, what, what my mind predominantly dwells on will determine how my days, how my years, and ultimately my life plays out. What I think about on a regular basis, what I focus on in my daily life will ultimately determine what my future looks like. Everything starts in the mind. The author of Lamentations, traditionally it's been ascribed to Jeremiah the prophet, But the author of Lamentations in chapter 3 says these incredible words. I remember my affliction and my want. I remember. With my mind, I think back to my pain. With my mind, I think back to my challenges. I think back to the woundings and the storms that have have damaged me. I I think back to the betrayals. I think back to the disappointments with my mind. I remember my affliction and my wandering. I remember the bitterness. I remember it's what he's dwelling on. 
It's what he's focused on. It's what his daily thinking is about. He said, I remember the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, he said. And as a result, my soul is downcast within me. That, that shows me that what my mind focuses on affects my inner being, which then ultimately determines my outward behaviour. I remember these things and my soul as a result of dwelling on the negatives, dwelling on the, on the things that have happened to me or the things that perhaps have not happened to me that I've wanted to happen to me. As I focus on that, my soul is downcast within me. But he goes on in verse 21. He said, yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. It all starts in the mind. He said, when I call to mind the Lord's great love, that by his great love we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. When I call to mind the fact that every morning his faithfulness is renewed towards me, when I call to mind those things about God and I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, And when I think about those things on a regular basis and I shift my thinking from the negative, from the affliction, from the things that have happened to me, the bitterness and the gall and the the problems and the pain, and I start to say to myself, the Lord is my portion. And I start to declare that He is good to those who hope in Him and those who seek Him. Something happens in His soul that lifts Him out of that sense of pain and rejection and hurt and anxiety. You know, given that my feelings, my motivation and my behaviour begin in my mind, given that that is a fact and that my mind is where spiritual transformation takes place, is it any surprise that the enemy of my soul, the devil, wants to mess with my thinking? It must be, I believe, his favourite first attempt to distract and derail people. To, to block them from experiencing God's best for their life. And it usually works. When people dwell on the wrong thing, when I dwell on the wrong thing, when you dwell on the wrong thing, it, it starts to just miscue us. It doesn't have to start with much. It can just be a few negative thoughts. I, I remember hearing many years ago that if you got on a, an airliner in Los Angeles and you were flying to Sydney and you were just a half a degree off, you'd land in Melbourne. But when you start off, you wouldn't notice the half a degree. So you see, that's what happens with our thinking. We can just be a half a degree, oh, I don't think about that too much, but we think about it and then it starts to become something we dwell on and then eventually we're we're just going way off course, way away from where God had originally intended us to go. The devil knows that whatever gets the focus of your mind will get you. In Acts chapter 14, We read the same thing happened in Iconium. If you want to know what the same thing was, well, you're about to read it, but you need to go back and read chapter 13. But Paul and Barnabas went to the Jewish synagogue and preached with such power that a great number of both Jews and Greeks became believers. God was with them. Miracle after miracle. The anointing of God was 
thick. You could have cut the atmosphere with a knife, with the presence of God permeating every aspect of everything that they did. And people were getting saved. But some of the Jews spurned God's message, and watch this, poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. But the apostles stayed there a long time, preaching boldly about the grace of the Lord. And the Lord proved their message was true by giving them power to do miraculous signs. But the people of the town, as a result of these people who spurned God's message and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles, the people of the town became divided in their opinion. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. I I have sadly seen... That very thing happened in my 35 years of church ministry and leadership. I've seen it in the life of the church over the years that I've been involved. I've seen it in recent years. I've seen it way back when I first started. I have watched people's faith become derailed as a result of of people who have allowed offence into their heart and then they dwell on the offence Something of a poisonous nature gets into their mind and then they begin to infect others with their poison. And as a result, their faith has become derailed and they derail others in the process. I've seen that. It's a sad, sad thing to watch. I have seen over the years people literally believe lies as though it were truth. And they've derailed, they've, they've gone way off course to where God had wanted to take it. I, I've, I've seen, you know, we talked in the baby dedication about, about the influence of a parent. I have seen children become teenagers who hate the church because of the poisonous influence of a parent's mindset. Because they've inappropriately said things at the dinner table. They've inappropriately vomited their their poison out in the the earshot of little impressionable influenced minds. And I've seen kids grow up hating the house of God. Hating God himself because of what was done to my parents. You know, I, I... no, I'm not even going back down the last couple of years. I, man, there's some stories there that I could tell, but I'm not even going to let my head go there. You know, I've seen people once flourishing in their walk with God, in their relationship with Jesus, suddenly begin to flounder and come to a grinding halt. When I, when I first got saved, I was attending Alcoholics Anonymous. I was 19 years of age. And I was attending AA meetings and I got to know quite a few influences in the AA circles. And just before I got saved, and I, I came to this church through a Christian cafe, if a cafe can be a Christian, that is, but um, I came to the church through a cafe run by Christians with a Christian influence. And, and unbeknownst to me, somebody who I knew very well in Alcoholics Anonymous, he was probably 10, 15 years older than me, started to attend this church before I even knew about this church. And, and when I eventually was invited to come along and I started to attend the church, he was here. And, and, and I got talking to him and he said, oh, well, somebody I met knew somebody and they invited me along. And he said, oh, I'm really finding this interesting. And then he gets saved before I do. So we're both attending the church and he gets saved. Something dramatic happened in his life and he changed. We talk about Moses coming down from the mountain 
and his face shone. That same thing happened to this man. He was a heavy smoker. He stopped smoking instantly. Just, he just tore his cigarettes up and he stopped smoking. And for months, his countenance just beamed. There was a spring in his step. There was life in him that I had never seen before. He was always a friendly man, but there was something took place. He was going to AA meetings, but he was coming to church meetings and he was getting involved on Sunday. He was worshipping Jesus and he, he couldn't stop talking about his newfound faith. But people within the AA organization who were influencers in his life got in his ear and started to tell him if you follow Jesus in this way you will return to your life of alcoholism and yet they they couldn't see or perhaps wouldn't see the change in this man's life the transformation he he actually had gone from being 30 odd years sober leading a good life to just elevating to here, leading an incredible life. And they're telling him, if you keep doing this, but I'm still coming to AA. He said, yeah, but you keep, you, you've got to stay with, AA's your church, AA's your, and, and eventually they so whittled him down. They so influenced him and I believe spurned God's message and poisoned his mind that he walked away from the church he took up smoking again. The beam in his eyes was gone. The glow on his face disappeared and he went back to this same old person that I knew him to be. You know, a mindset is a filter through which we, we view our life. A filter alters reality. You put a filter on a camera, it alters what the lens of the camera sees. It alters reality. A filter is a, is a, a reality changer and, and a mindset is a filter through which we see life. And if you have a, an unbiblical mindset or an unbiblical filter, the way in which you are viewing life, you will see life in a way that God doesn't see it. You know, there's numerous um, symptoms to a snake bite, a venomous snake bite. Sweating, um, fever, nausea, vomiting. But one of the things that is common to a venomous snake bite is blurred vision. Your vision becomes blurry and distorted. You might start seeing double. You might start seeing fuzz. You might stop seeing anything at all. You know, if we are bitten by the same snake that bit Adam and Eve, our vision of life will become distorted. If we allow the enemy to, to get into our mind and get a hold of our mind with his filters, his mindset, and we allow him to inject his venom into our soul, our vision of life will become grossly distorted to the way God sees it and the way God ultimately wants us to see it. What, what or who is poisoning your mind? Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all else. For it determines the course of your life. There it is again. The heart is the seat of our mind, our emotions and our will. Guard your heart above all else. Don't guard your bank account. Guard your heart. Because your heart is what determines the course of your life, not your bank account. Proverbs 15, 14 says, A wise person is hungry for knowledge. The knowledge of God's truth is what the author is saying here. But the fool feeds on trash. 
Uh, many, many of you know I, I used to play the bagpipes. They come out every now and then and the dust gets blown off them and, and uh, they're, they're a bit rusty. I'm a bit rusty. They're not rusty. I'm the one that's rusty. But um, my dad and I played in a pipe band here in Newcastle in the 70s and it was a competition pipe band. And uh, we were very competitive. We, we had a name. We were well-known. We were a, a band to contend with in the competition circuit. And when there was a competition coming up, we would spend months, weekend after weekend after weekend, practising, uh, preparing, uh, going through drill routines. Because when you were judged, you weren't just judged on your playing. While you were playing, there'd be a judge on the field judging that but there'd also be a judge judging your drill. Were you keeping straight ranks when you, you do what we used to call a wheel, you turn a corner. If you're on the outside and you're making a left-hand turn, there had to be a bigger gap between you and the piper in front of you or the drummer, whatever you were. If you're on the inside of the wheel, then you just basically had to turn like this. On the outside, you had to keep a bigger pace to keep your rows. So you're playing, trying to play in unison with sometimes eight to 12 other pipers. And you're also keeping your eyes peeled that I'm not getting too far in front, not, you know, because there's guys walking with you watching your rank. So it was high pressure. And we, we played in the East Coast Pipe Band Championships. We played in the New South Wales Pipe Band Championships. But in 1976, when I was 15 years of age, I was 15 turning 16, we, we were preparing for the Australasian Pipe Band Championships which were being held that year in Adelaide. And we would do social engagements that the band would get paid for which would raise money to help fund the airline tickets and the accommodation and what have you. So there was a lot of work involved but in the months in the lead up, we would sit around a table with our practice chanters and we would practice the, the tunes we were going to play. We'd go out onto an oval and we would practice the drill. We'd do it without playing. We'd do it while we were playing. You know, we, we were fed up doing starts and stops and stuff because you'd be judged on, you know, when you played in the pipe band, the drum roll would come in. And on the, at the beginning of the second drum roll, we'd all hit our bags in unison and you'd hear the drones all coming together. You'd kick them up under your arm and then all at the same time, you had the, the chanters would all come in. If you had one come in too early, you'd lose points. So we had to get this down to a fine art. And, but we spent months and months and months. And then we would play these engagements in between to raise money to fund the trip. And finally it came. And I've never forgotten this. It so impacted me in a negative way. We, we went out on the field and, and the nerves were, were intense and it's illegal to do this. It probably wasn't back then, but, but a bottle of scotch would go through the band just before we went out. And 15, 14-year-olds would be... Just to settle the nerves. And um, Anyway, we, you'd go out on parade and your heart would be pounding in your chest. And then the drum major, the guy with the mace at the front, would buy the centre. Quick, march. This is it. The point of no return. Judges everywhere. And you would take off. You had to be in step. All that sort of stuff. You'd take off. And the first drum roll, that's when I'd hit my bag. At that moment, I hit my bag and knocked my bagpipes clean off my shoulder. All the months a preparation of work, of team effort. I blew it for the whole band. The whole band. 
because of me. Now, I, I, I was devastated and I could not compose myself. We're marching, we're still going, and for some reason my bag would not hold air. I thought one of my drone reeds have dropped inside the bag and the air's escaping. I, I'm trying to blow it up, I'm trying to get it happening. I could not mount my drones, and in the end I just stopped and I just marched along. Tears. Why was it so impacting? Because I, I'd let the whole band down. It wasn't a solo competition, it was a team effort. And tears rolling down my face. And I've missed this. And I remember when we got to the end of the marching diagram where we would then form a circle and play a set which we'd be judged on our playing for. I remember one of the judges went over to our pipe major and said to our pipe major, we said something to him and then pointed over at me. And our pipe major took his hat off and threw it on the ground. And of course, I loved the man dearly, respected him, and there was nothing in it. But he was so frustrated because he too felt the pain of all the work, all the effort, all the money raised, the flights, the accommodation, everything. And I, I blew it and he came over, he said, what happened? I said, I don't know. I said, my pipes won't work. I said, I think a drone's fallen out and you wouldn't believe it. He said, strike them up. They've given us a couple of minutes reprieve. I struck them up and they worked. And he looked at me and then I felt like, well, aren't I a Wally? And I worked, so I played the set and he, he looked at my pipes later. He said, there's nothing wrong with them. He said, it must have just been nerves. And, and to this day, I don't really know what it was, but I was devastated. And you know, I didn't know God then and I didn't know the devil, but he was at work in my head as a 15-year-old. You stuffed it up for everybody. And there was nothing said. It was like just, just nothing said. And it's like nobody coming up saying, it's okay, don't worry about it. Nobody came up and, and, and had a go at me. There was just nothing said. And the silence was killing me. And it was, it was messing with my head. And I think in the end, it was my dad who looked at me and he said, he said, it could have happened to anybody. Put it behind you and move forward. Forget it. And I did eventually get over it. But it so impacted my mind. And the enemy got into my head. And it was like it was just messing with this 15-year-old. It's like who or what is poisoning your mind? We all make mistakes. We all mess up. We all make blunders. Don't let the devil get in there and just pound away and pound away and pound away. We've got to keep our mind focused on the truth of God's word. I am not a failure. I fail. But I'm not a failure. I am fearfully and wonderfully made in the eyes of God. So you've got tickets on yourself. Well, God's got tickets on me, just like he's got tickets on you. And I keep reminding myself of that. I am not a failure. My life has been planned and mapped out from all eternity. God planned my moment of birth from all eternity. He awaited that moment with joy. He sang over me when I was born. And he had a plan for me to find him in due course 19 years later. And he had the plan to shape and mould my life. And in that process, I made mistakes, I, I made wrong choices, things went pear-shaped in my life at times, but ultimately he got a hold of me and then he had to start transforming me through renewing my mind. And I shared in the first message of this series that I, I was a young man who did not like himself. I had such a low self-esteem. And, and you know, I, I, I was just struggling in life. But I think what's changed me, I know what's changed me, has been aligning my thoughts with the Word of God. Now, I've shared this story with you before, and I'm not going to go into all the details of it, but um, it's probably the most destructive time the devil had in my life was when I left pastoring my first church, the Cessnock Church. 
I, I had a leader in the church, and I, I have shared this, apologise if, if you've heard this before, but some of you won't have. I had a leader in the church who constantly asked me, he said, I don't want to be a leader, I want you to stand me down, but when you've got a small church, you need everybody, so I'd keep talking him out of standing down. And Anyway, eventually, he sat with me and he said, I really don't want to be a leader, the pressure of this is too great. And I said, well, okay, I'll release you from it. And that's that, the truth, God is my witness, that's exactly what happened. And uh, then he said to me, he said, uh, he said, but I still want to come to leadership meetings. I still want to attend all the leadership things. I still want to be in that inner circle, but I just don't want the responsibility of leading anything. If I had my time over as a 58-year-old, I said, oh, come, I don't care. Just come to the meeting. So you're not doing anything, but it's not hurting anything by sitting there. But I was a 27-year-old, green, wet behind the ears. And I just said, well, no, it's inappropriate for you to keep coming to the leaders' meetings. You're not a leader anymore. And he got offended by that. He then went out and told another leader in the church that I'd stood him down from leadership, and which wasn't true. And then word started to go out in my mind that I had stood this guy down when I hadn't. So I rang him and I said, you telling people I've stood you down from leadership. He said, you did stand me down from leadership. I said, I didn't stand you down from leadership. I said, this is what happened. You came to me and asked, could you be stood down? And I, I kept talking you out of it. And eventually you said, no, I don't want to do this. And, and I so I released you. Isn't that what happened? He said, oh, well, I suppose that is what happened. I said, well, then how do you get I stood you down from leadership out of that? Oh, well, okay, I hear what you're saying. Maybe you didn't. Uh, but, well, you're going to go now and fix it with the people you've told, which didn't happen. And then what happened at that point, I, I stopped sleeping. Uh, you know, the whole church hates me. Everybody thinks I'm a bad leader and, and I'm tossing and turning at night. And in the end, I rang Pastor John, who's here now, who was the senior pastor of this church. And I said, John, I can't do this anymore. You know, man, I look back on that now and I think it was a storm in a teacup. And I'm falling apart on the inside. And I, I said, I can't do this anymore. And he was so gracious and so kind. And he just cuddled me and held me. And <laughs> those of you who know who John know that didn't happen. Um, <laughs> but he was very, very kind and very understanding in the whole thing. And he just said, because we were a daughter church of this church. I wasn't autonomous. I was under their leadership. So he said, look, we release you from that role. He asked me to come down and join the team here and that's how I became the assistant pastor here. But in the end, I just said, I'm going to resign. So I stood up and announced it to the church. There wasn't a dry eye in the congregation. I'm really confused now. You all hate me. What are you crying for? Say, the truth was they didn't hate me. It was two people. And two people, the devil got a hold of, blew it out of proportion in my mind, spurned God's message to me, which was I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and began to poison my mind to start believing things that were not true. And I stood there and resigned. Now, in two years that I was there, we took over with 37 people. And when we left, there was 110 coming every Sunday. And we'd bought a building and things were happening. And, and it, there was just a great atmosphere in the place. And Kathy Gundry's here somewhere. Kathy was in the church. Yeah, you can testify to that. Things were happening. Were you there the day I resigned? And I just... I stood there and people, people, what are you leaving us for? I thought, because you hate me. (laughs) Soon after I left, Arden Burrell prophesies over me. The devil ripped you off in Cessna. Well, that's an understatement, isn't it? (laughs) But he's a redeeming God. He knew it was going to happen. Did I leave prematurely? Absolutely, I left prematurely. But it's because the devil got in my head. And poison my mind with things that were not true. We've got to be careful what we think on, what we focus on. Keep things in perspective. Have good people in your life that will give you a balanced view on things. And I'm going to close with this. You guys can come back up if you like. I'm going to close with this.
And I have shared this before, but it just came to me as I was putting the final touches on my message. Psalm 23. There's a verse in there that says, God anoints my head with oil. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Who's the, people aren't my enemy. The, the devil is my enemy and he prepares a table for me. He blesses me in the presence of my enemies. But he anoints my head with oil and my cup runs over. You know, there, there is a pesty fly in the sheep herding business called the bot fly. You can research this. Just Google it. Google will tell you all about the bot fly. But the bot fly, this is pretty disgusting, but the bot fly lays its maggots in the nasal cavity of the sheep. And the flies keep going up the nose of the sheep and keep laying its maggots and the maggots multiply and then they start wriggling and they get so many in there that they so irritate the sheep that a common thing to see is a sheep banging its head against a tree because of the irritation and the agitation of these maggots. And the shepherd would take oil, warm oil, would hold the sheep in a headlock and pour the oil into the nasal cavity of the sheep. And it would so irritate the maggots that they would begin dropping out of the nose of the sheep and would bring relief. You know, the devil is known as Beelzebub, which means Lord of the Flies. He too gets into our head and lays his maggoty thoughts And when they start to accumulate enough, we start to dwell on those things and mental illness can be the result. Depression can be the result. Anxiety can be the result. Torment in our mind can be the result. And we, like the sheep, begin banging our head in frustration and pain. But Jesus comes and he anoints my head with oil. And he's anointing oil, the Holy Spirit. So irritates those maggoty thoughts that they begin dropping out of my mind. And he clears my head. And my cup begins to run over. And when I start to allow that oil to do its job thoroughly, my mind begins to align afresh with the Word of God. He is my shepherd. He is for me. And if he is for me, who can be against me? If he he is for me, what or who can stop me from becoming who he has called me to become? You know, over the years, I have been criticized as a leader. I've been told that I'm not a good leader. And the truth is, I don't think I am. But I rest on the truth of God's word that he chooses the base things to confound that which is strong. He confuses, he he chooses the weak things to bring to nothing that which is powerful in the eyes of this world so that no man can boast. No man can say, look, it's my leadership. It's my gift. It's my, no, it's all him and his grace in my life and me allowing him to transform me through the changing and renewing of my mind. I'm shouting, aren't I, Margo? I'm not angry, I promise. I get angry at the devil. He transforms me through the renewing of my mind, changing the way I think. Am I perfect? Not by a long shot. 
am I a fantastic leader? Not at all. I'm just trying to do what Jesus has called me to do. And I'm trying to do it as humbly as possible with as much integrity as possible. And at the end of the day, he will judge me for how well I've done in that journey. But if I allow the maggoty thoughts of the devil to get in my mind, I've almost resigned many times because of those thoughts. I've almost thrown in the towel. I've almost, I've almost said, following Jesus is just too hard. I just don't want to do this anymore. It's you know, follow, leading you lot. I just, it's going to kill me in the process. I just, and, and then, you know, somebody said recently, Jesus is not trying to kill you. I think he is. <laughs> and I mean that sincerely. He, he wants me to be crucified yeah. with Christ. So that I can say with Paul, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's not me and my leadership. It's Jesus and his gifting and anointing that he can give or take away anyway, anytime he likes. And I'm going on too long. God is good. And we've got to get our eyes off ourselves and off our weaknesses, off our inabilities, off what, what the world tries to tell us, what, what influences in our life try to tell us. Let me close with this one statement. I promise I'm going to close with it. Listen more to your creator than to your critics. Yeah. 